Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. The overt sexuality and sexual violence and assault found within the Bible is often shocking to the high school students with whom I have taught in my religious studies classes over the years. The most common sentiments are, I can't believe this is in here, and how did I never know the Bible said this? Oftentimes, students might reel a bit from the vividness of biblical stories, and then the question becomes, how do I engage with this information? What does this mean about my own life? What does this mean in the terms of this religion, which might be practiced by millions, if not a billion or more, people? My guest on this episode is Dr. Rhiannon Graybill, who asks these questions. And this is an episode about engaging with biblical texts that contain terrifying scenes of sexual violence. Just a warning that this episode contains troubling stories of sexual violence within the Bible and may not be appropriate for all ages. Dr. Graybill offers a preview of our topics as well in the conversation and what to consider before listening to the entire duration of our conversation. We discuss her new book, Texts After Terror, Rape, Sexual Violence, and the Hebrew Bible, out now from Oxford University Press. We discuss her framework for reading such texts, the stories of Dinah, Tamar, Judges, and Lot's daughters, and we also discuss the work of Margaret Atwood. Dr. Rhiannon Grable is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Rhodes College and is a scholar of the Hebrew Bible whose work brings together biblical texts and contemporary critical and cultural theory. If you want to follow Classical Ideas on Twitter, you can find me at Classical underscore Ideas. Without further delay, I bring to you my conversation with Dr. Rhiannon Graybill. Dr. Rhiannon Graybill, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Well, I'm delighted to have you, and I'm excited to talk about your work and learn all about all the um, wonderful, uh, fantastic work that you're doing in your field. But before we dive into all of that, I'm wondering if you can just spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit. Sure. So my name is Rhiannon Graybill, and I teach religious studies at Rhodes College in Memphis. I've taught there since 2012. Um, I'm the author of this book we're going to talk about, Text After Terror, which is about sexual violence in the Hebrew Bible, but I have an earlier book about masculinity and the Hebrew Bible. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm curious about your situatedness within the topics that you study because, you know, writing about sexual violence in, you know, religious scripture is not, you know, it, it's something that there probably has to be like a really specific backstory to how you landed on that. And um, you write largely about the Hebrew Bible, and I'm interested in the origin story of your path towards these areas of interest. Sure. So studying the Hebrew Bible was not my life plan from the beginning. <laughs> um, I went to college and I was going to study English literature and I needed a fourth class because my schedule had a hole and I wanted to take intro to religion and it was full. So I took um, intro to the Hebrew Bible with this great scholar named Rachel Haverlock. And I just, I love the class and I love that. I thought I knew what was in the Hebrew Bible. And then I remember we were reading. And so there's a story in Exodus um, four where God tries to kill Moses in the middle of the night. And Moses only gets saved because his wife Zipporah smears some blood from this like middle of the night circumcision and it saves Moses's life. And I was like, what is happening here? Oh like I grew up reading the Bible, going to church. Like, how do I not know about this? And so like, then I was hooked. Um, but I also love that the Bible is, so it's one object of study, but you can use feminist methods. You can use queer methods. You can do all kinds of different things to it. 
um, I didn't originally start either with sexual violence. I was always interested in feminism and in thinking about kind of like feminist approaches to text. But in college, I was like, oh, I'm over women's studies that that already happened. And so I studied this thing called interpretation theory. Mm-hmm. It's just like this postmodern soup. It was great. Um, but as I became a biblical scholar, these stories just kept kind of drawing my attention. And then also teaching at a liberal arts college, um, they also really resonated with the students and with their experiences, both growing up and in college in good and bad ways. And so I felt like I wanted to deal with that more. Mm. Where were you doing your undergrad? Did you say? Uh, no, Swarthmore College. It's outside of Philadelphia. Wonderful. Okay. So you get this random encounter with the Hebrew Bible as an undergrad and you're like, whoa, this is really interesting. So where do you go from there? Like, what is this path like because of this one single class, it seems like was a transformative moment for you? Yeah. So I was like, wow, this class is great. Okay. But maybe I want to be a history major. So then I decided I would test it. And so I took another class which fits perfectly in retrospect into my trajectory. I took this class called sexual license and gender transgression. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it was, it was like in the Bible and late antique tradition or something. And then I took history of modern Iran and they were both great classes, but I was like, okay, I like, I'm really interested in Hebrew Bible. And so then I started studying Hebrew and I sort of kept taking these classes. The other piece that I left out before. So my mom is a Lutheran pastor and like Mm -hmm. (laughs) growing up, she would always talk to me about, you know, about the Bible, but also feminist approaches. So like it, in retrospect, of course, that played a big role in it too. I thought I was like doing this family rebellion because I wasn't going to be a lawyer, which is Mm. what my dad was. So then like I ended up in my mom's field instead, but (laughs) yeah, so I went to Berkeley for grad school. And then I ended up at Rhodes, which is just a lovely place, a lovely colleague. Awesome. Do you have any sort of like academic precursor scholars who sort of helped you find your path as you were like navigating into what would become your areas of specialty? Good question. So Rachel Haverlock, who was at Swarthmore, she was actually just visiting that year. She was wonderful and really helpful and has been really supportive to me throughout, um, throughout my career. I went to Berkeley and I studied with Robert Alter, who has done really great work on literary readings of the Bible. He also, he's a very established scholar. He's written like 28 books or something. So he was wonderful to study with, but he was also, I think I was one of his last students before he retired. And so Mm. he had a lot going on. I sort of was, I would love to say that I had a great mentor in grad school. I really didn't. Mm. But I sort of just like fumbled my way and I found people in the field. And now I have a lot of really great supportive colleagues. But I think sort of what I do is unusual in biblical studies. And partly it's because I was just sort of cobbling it together. I think it worked out. But for a while there, I wasn't sure that it would. Does your lack of like a really foundational mentor shape the way that you possibly mentor and some of your own students? Yeah, absolutely. I try always to mentor my undergrads and then also like graduate students or other early career people that I meet in biblical studies. I think biblical studies has a real problem with the sort of like doctor father model, which I think is actually super creepy. Um, Mm. There's this kind of way that advisors will try to clone themselves and their students. And it's very, I don't know how much the audience is familiar with the field of biblical studies. It's 76% male. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's just, it's got some creepy gender dynamics. It's got some real racist dynamics. And so I try as a person in the field who has, um, who has established myself in some way to work against that. Nice. Yeah, can, the first time I went to the annual conference, I was just like, what have I gotten myself into? This is terrible, but it got better. Well, and I tell you what, this is the kind of show where I totally welcome those kinds of thoughts and ideas. Uh, just to be okay, put great. under sunshine, you know, let's, let's put some sunlight right on these problems and talk about it openly. So I, I welcome those kinds of thoughts and ideas here. Yeah. I mean, one thing I will say is that part of my interest in forms of sexual violence that aren't dramatic, but that are still sort of like that eat away at your sense of self a little bit of it. I mean, some of that comes from professional encounters in the field too. Yeah. And so I think that's one reason that I hope one way, I hope this book will resonate with readers. I mean, I hope it doesn't, right? I hope that other people aren't having these experiences, but I know that they are. Right. Well, you know, before we get into the book um, and and your work more broadly, you know, we're likely to discuss some topics that may be traumatic for some listeners. And I'm wondering if you might have a, a, a caveat 
to offer possibly about some of the topics that we're going to get into in our conversation? Sure. So my book talks about, and I'm sure we'll talk about in our conversation, rape, gang rape, murder, um, gender-based violence, but also sort of more other forms of sexual violence, like sexual harassment, everyday kind of experiences of sexual violence. And so, I mean, it's in the subtitle of the book because I don't want readers to be surprised, but it's, it's definitely something that we'll be talking about. I try to approach these questions from a feminist and from a queer perspective and sort of also to center the voices of survivors, but I also am interested in finding other ways to talk about it. I think sometimes we talk about sexual violence and it's just sort of like the same thing over and over again. And so some of my takes I think are a little bit different, but I always wanna do that with respect for survivors and for people experiencing sexual violence, but it's definitely gonna be central. Fantastic. Okay. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, just as a, a note to listeners out there that, you know, we, we may talk about some things that are, uh, you know, traumatizing in general, but you study sexual violence in the Hebrew Bible, which is a daunting and likely horrifying topic to study, like, because you subject yourself day in, day out across your entire career to these stories, which can be quite, like, traumatizing. Uh, I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about your own work habits in order to balance your own personal and mental health with that of what you study for a living, because, you know, this seems like something that would be very important to have like a work-life balance with relation to, you know? Yeah, definitely. It's funny. My mom one time was like, Rhiannon, you always study just the worst things. Like, when are you <laughs> going to write about something happy? And I was like, this is what I'm interested in. Um, but you're right. It can also it can be something that can really sort of take over. For me, I found that because I was thinking about these issues in, in popular culture and in my own life, right, I started sort of focusing on this topic in particular, sort of around the time that the Me Too movement was really blossoming and sort of around the Weinstein stuff. And so actually making it a focus of my work in some ways lets me channel some of that kind of distress and anxiety into mm -hmm. something that sort of is more focused. That being said, you can't spend all your time just reading stories about rape. And so I think one thing is that having a network of feminist scholars and friends that I can reach out to has been really important. I have two colleagues in particular, um, Meredith Minister and Beatrice Lawrence. Before this, we edited a book about rape culture and teaching. And so having them to talk to has been super helpful. Another Excellent. thing is I find that teaching is a really good kind of interruption because when you're writing a book, you have to think long thoughts, right? It takes a long time to write a book. When you're teaching class, you have like 45 minutes to an hour and a half, right? And you want to have the class hopefully have some kind of shape where it doesn't just like end it's sort of in the middle of something. And so both teaching these stories, but also teaching other stories just sort of interrupts my kind of mental chain of thought. But then also it's important to take breaks from work, um, obviously. So spending time with my family, um, I mean, pandemic made it hard for everyone, right? Yeah. We went to the park a lot. I had a pandemic. I had a baby in the pandemic. So that was lovely. And so we have, she's this adorable little eight month old now. <laughs> we spend a lot of time, you know, she doesn't care about rape in the Bible. So we spend right. a lot of time like looking at pictures of dogs and giggling. So that's a wonderful break too. Wonderful. Okay. Well, that's good. I'm glad that you have some balance because it, it's a, it's a hard topic, but I'm glad that there are people like you doing this kind of work because it's important. And I'm glad that you're able to find that balance between these topics and your own life in a way that is sustainable because doing this for a long career, uh, it matters, you know? So I'm glad that you have that. Well, I want to get to the newest book in just a moment, but I feel like we, we could upset the narrative a little bit of your, of your work in our conversation. If we brushed past your 2016 book, which is called, are we not men unstable masculinity in the Hebrew Bible? So in that book, you discuss the difficulty of the male body for Hebrew prophets. And I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about this book to catch me up to speed, which we can then use to segue to your next book. Sure. So Are We Not Men is, like you said, it's a study of the Hebrew prophets and in particular of the way that the male body functions in prophecy. So I was very interested in writing this book and sort of thinking about all the ways that biblical prophets fail at being men according to the standards of biblical masculinity. And so there are all these ways that the prophets act and in particular things that their bodies do that don't conform to what you would expect for mm. ancient masculinity in the Bible. So for example, 
Jeremiah is always complaining and there's this way that his use of his voice is very um, not kind of what a man, how a man is supposed to talk or the prophet <laughs> Hosea marries a prostitute. He's commanded to do this by God or a, especially like a wife of whoredom or a promiscuous woman. So he has this kind of um, queer marriage. The prophet Ezekiel performs all of these unusual um, sort of like scenes of self-torture that God has commanded him to do. And so I was interested in thinking about how all of these scenes are ways that masculinity is disrupted. So in the book, I set each biblical prophet against a kind of contemporary text or film. So like I talk about Hosea together with the film, The Exorcist. I talk about Ezekiel together with this um, German judge named Daniel Paul Schraber, who wrote this book called Memoirs of My Nervous Illness. And in each of those, I'm interested in kind of drawing out how the performance of masculinity is ultimately like a queer performance of masculinity. And so, yeah, it was a fun, fun project. That sets up kind of thinking about the body, some of the like thinking about violence against the body, and then also like reading ancient texts with modern things. Wow. It kind of reminds me of uh, John Stoltenberg's Refusing to Be a Man, that book from like the 19, late 1980s, which yeah. is seeking to like upset the the notion of what manliness is in modern society. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the prophets are doing that too. I think also like prophecy, one of the key scenes for me, Ezekiel, when the word of God comes to him, it comes as this scroll and he eats it and it tastes like honey, but it's like this very sexual scene, right? It seems like a scene of oral sex, maybe of like non-consensual penetration of the body. And it's all just like transforming masculinity. But I think those contemporary ways of like pushing back really give us a window into thinking about biblical masculinity too. Interesting. Okay. Well, I'm wondering about your post-publishing timeline for that book, uh, Are We Not Men? So after that book, I'm wondering about if you had any like lingering questions that segued to your next book project and what that interim period between books was like for you and your thinking. So after I finished, are we not men? I, so I was happy with the reception of the book, but also I felt like there was a way that masculinity studies, which my book was sort of being slotted into became this way, not of critiquing or thinking critically about masculinity, but just sort of of like uncritically reproducing norms of masculinity. And so I was sort of irritated about this. And I started <laughs> this project about cannibals in the Bible because I was like, well, this is something very different. That project is like still languishing. <laughs> then I was like, well, I wrote about men. I'm going to write a book about women now. Like this nice. will be a great segue, like a very obvious segue. So I was going to write just a book about biblical women. But then I realized the stories I was interested in were consistently stories about sexual violence. And so it went from this sort of larger, more descriptive project to being a book about sexual violence and kind of become, it eventually became text after terror. I think that making it, this is something a lot of us experience in lots of kinds of projects being more focused can make something work better, but it sort of started just like women. And then now it's a book about obviously sexual violence and specific stories. Excellent. Okay, so your new book, Text After Terror, Rape, Sexual Violence, and the Hebrew Bible, just out in 2021 from Oxford University Press. What was the release date? Do you know off the top of your head? So it was shifted a little bit because of COVID. There were some delays. I think it's May 7th. Okay, cool, cool. So it's brand new, which is fantastic. Tell me about how this book took shape in your mind during the planning stages and sort of what you were setting out to do originally. So when the book started, I was feeling frustrated. So this frustration at the way masculinity studies had kind of neglected um, thinking critically about gender, but I was also feeling frustrated about the way that it seems to me like feminist biblical criticism would do the same thing in responding to stories about sexual violence. So there was this sort of script that you got very used to hearing about how we would read each of these various stories. And it involves sort of talking about the story, talking about how terrible it was, like we all agree it was terrible and then we move on. And so partly I would hear like conference papers, partly this is something I would read a lot. I felt like feminist criticism, like we needed to do something different. And I was mm -hmm. also unhappy about the way that feminist criticism was asked to sort of perform this work of being sad about the sad parts of the Bible so that other scholars could do other things. So often like an intro class, um, a graduate class or maybe an undergraduate class, you'll have like one week on feminist criticism and you'll talk about like the sad gender stories and you'll read a little bit of Phyllis Tribble and you'll feel, you'll be like, yes, this is truly sad. And then you'll move on. So I wanted to do something different from that. Mm. And so that kind of led me 
to thinking about rape stories, the other thing is that um, Emma Nagus, who is a graduate student in Sheffield, invited me to speak at a conference about um, rape and sexual violence in the Bible. And I started, that's where I started thinking about um, how we could approach these stories differently. And I came up with this kind of paradigm of fuzzy, messy, and icky, which I'm guessing we'll talk about in a yeah, little bit. And that's where will. that sort of was born. I love it. I love it. Okay. So um, the title is a play on a different classic book's title, Tribbles, Texts of Terror. And I'm wondering if you can talk about the uh, the the reshifting of the title, Texts After Terror, from Texts of Terror. So Texts of Terror, Tribbles' book, is an absolute classic. It's a response to four stories that she introduces this phrase, text of terror, which is often applied to texts that have extreme misogyny, extreme gender violence. So she talks about four, she calls them sad stories in the Bible. And this is like a really important book for how to sort of, for acknowledging the gender violence in the Bible. So it's wonderful. And I want to, I want to say that I found it, it was very influential for me. It's influential for a lot of people. The other thing about this book is it's as old as I am. So mm. it isn't a new book and it still kind of dominates the way that we think this kind of framework of text of terror. And so I'm interested in thinking after and that after is not a replacement. So it's building on this existing feminist work. But I think thinking after terror is also important as a way of opening space for the idea that terrible things can happen, right? Gender violence, rape, things like that. But there also is an after for many survivors. And I think erasing that is actually really bad. I also think that after kind of, there's a part I thought about, I don't remember if I included this or not. Emily Dickinson has a poem after great pain. I was interested in that. I think about after, right? You can call something after someone as a kind of tribute to them. So it's doing all of that work of after, like what happens after the bad things? Yeah, well, and that even speaks to the reader as well, because I'll never forget moments of like being you know, a young university student and reading narratives of history that upset the, um, you know, the, the, the white supremacist perspective that I was essentially handed to in my formative years and seeing ways that the, you know, perspectives that uh, were, you know, based on uh, the settler colonial mindset of, um, you know, the ways that we're, we're taught about narrative within, um, you know, the United States specifically. Mm -hmm. And so I really like the idea of um, the after terror, because after I learned these different perspectives, I was not the same again. Do you know what I mean? Like the mm -hmm. reading and then you have the after the reading as well, how you're a different person and how these texts can change the way we are as people just because we've read a story. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely a big part of it, right? The way that you're different in the after. And also I think building on your point about settler colonialism, also the way that after the terrible thing happens, there also are often survivors in that community, right? So you can think about how, right, the we're still here argument from Native American communities, from Palestinian communities. And so there's this, there, the after changes you, but also there are still, it does, you can't just be like, oh, that was a terrible thing that happens. I feel sad about it. You also have to reckon with the fact that it's still happening and there are still people in the aftermath. Mm, I love it. Okay, so the opening line of your book talks about your friend who refuses to watch even critically acclaimed films if they contain a rape scene. And that reminded me of someone I know who is vegan, who said they refuse to watch or read more information that contains evidence of animal suffering and death at the hands of humans and like the animal industrial complex. And you mentioned you tried to avoid the Bible's rapes for a while yourself. And so what changes your mind and brings you around on, on focusing on this? I think the biggest thing that changed my mind was teaching students who would consistently talk about how the way that they learned about the Bible in school or in their religious traditions growing up was very much um, like it traumatized a lot of them because it was very much flaming the victim. It was very much sort of using the Bible to justify shaming, to justify rape culture. So that was a big part of it. I remember I was teaching the um, biblical rape laws on the day of the Kavanaugh hearings. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it was an uncanny kind of echoing because in the biblical rape laws, right. You need to have, um, if a woman, like the idea of a woman crying out, like you don't believe the woman that it happened unless there are witnesses, unless she's someplace where no one else can hear. And so the sort of way that Christine Blasey Ford's testimony was being received, I was just, I couldn't get past the kind of stickiness between 
what was happening and sort of what was happening in the Bible. And so that I think was a big thing that kind of brought me back to it. Mm. Those are just frustrated. And I felt like we as biblical scholars were not thinking about these rape stories in interesting ways. And so the other sort of flip side of that was I felt like there was a way that often well-intentioned people would talk about the rape stories as the worst thing that ever happened. And I found this really unsettling knowing that also when I was teaching, like every class I taught, there were survivors of sexual violence in the class. I don't actually think it's helpful to tell people sitting in a class, the worst thing that ever happens to someone is rape. And this happens to someone in the Bible, right? When you have somebody sitting there that that's happened to you too. And so I wanted to think about a way we could acknowledge sexual violence, but not just sort of have the response be itself a form of re-traumatizing survivors. How do you prepare your students in your classroom for talking about these issues? Because like my high school students are always so shocked when I would assign the book of Genesis in its entirety and they would come mm -hmm. across a tremendous amount of challenging and explicit content. How do you, how do you prepare this in your class to, you know, cause if th this could traumatize, this could bring up some trauma for students who may then feel the need to essentially flee your classroom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's also this hard balance where some students it's very, traumatizing and some students were skimming and they like missed that it happened entirely because the Bible things happen quite quickly, like in Genesis. And right. so try to be really upfront at the beginning of the class. We talk about the kind of topics that are going to be problems. I try to, or that are going to talk about sexual violence. I put labels on, you know, like this day we're talking about the rape of Dina or something. So there shouldn't be surprises. I also tell students if, there are particular issues you're especially concerned with or that you would find triggering. Like I'm happy to give you more specific trigger warnings. Just come and see me. I thought about putting those on the syllabus, but sometimes I teach an upper level class that's um, gender and prophecy. And I mean, basically every week of the class, something bad is happening in sure. the text. And so it just didn't feel like that would be a kind of useful thing to do. I mean, it's, I, I'm not sure. One difference is my students are usually choosing to take my classes. And so I make sure they know what they're getting themselves into. If it's a required class, I think that's also tricky. And I think just being aware, but then also, you know, we talk about discomfort and we talk about how the text make us feel, but also I think it's important to think about feeling uncomfortable is not necessarily a reason not to reckon with something. And I think there's been really good writing around this with race and white supremacy and sort of, um, you know, the whole, white people feeling sad isn't a reason for them not to talk about racism. And I think sexual violence too, it's important that we talk about it in the text, but I try to do it. I mean, my goal is not for my class to traumatize people. Excellent. Okay. So um, in the book, you mentioned you looked for new ways of reading these violent stories, which obviously you want to offer new things to your academic field. So you have to look for new ways of reading stories like this. So I'm wondering about you, if you can compare like your old way or common old ways and any modifications you made to read them in new ways. I think the old ways are encapsulated nicely in this phrase from trouble, which is telling sad stories. So mm -hmm. it emphasizes that the stories are sad and that you as the scholar or the reader, your job is to retell the story. And so it emphasizes how terrible things are. And then you feel grief or sadness. And so and maybe you bear witness is kind of sort of religious language of witnessing is also a big part of it. So I think that is a kind of old way. I'm interested in thinking about stories. I talk about unhappy reading as an alternative. And I see that as a more kind of dynamic process, which doesn't necessarily mean the stories aren't sad, but it means that you as the reader have kind of a responsibility and also a freedom to think about different ways of telling the story. And so I, I talk one point in the book about some kind of strategies that we can use as readers. So I talk about not assuming a position of innocence, which can mean not assuming that the Bible is always good or like on the side of the values that we would want it to have. It also means not assuming that we as readers kind of have like an innocent encounter with the Bible. We always bring our own, our own histories to reading the text. I also mm -hmm. talk about not being a paranoid reader. And I get this idea from Eve Sedgwick, who was an important queer theorist. So Sometimes you can approach the Bible and be like, everything in the Bible is terrible. It's just full of rape. The Bible's just going to hurt me. I don't want to encounter it. And I think that kind of paranoia can also kind of shut down the way to sort of encounter specific stories. Try to pay attention to the way that stories make us feel. I talk about this language of affect and sticky affect. And then I've also found putting biblical texts together with contemporary stories can be a really useful way of kind of shaking them and showing new ways to understand them. So for me, one big text was, 
there's a short story by Kristen Rapinian called Cat Person. You might remember it. It went pretty viral, I think, in 2017. It's about this um, college student who has this just like really icky, gross sexual encounter. Um, and it, it was sort of, what was interesting is like it was in the New Yorker and people thought it was actually just an anthropological account, but it actually is a fictional story. But the way it kind of talks about this kind of icky, fuzzy, messy zone between consent and rape was a really interesting way for me to sort of think about biblical rape stories. So I think all of those are sort of new ways of approaching the text. Wonderful. Well, let's talk about this uh, this framework a little more specifically uh, of fuzzy, messy, icky. Um, you write in the book that some of the frameworks are exhausted, dated, and even unfeminist. And so I'm wondering if we can talk about this new framework a little more specifically, maybe break down each term a little bit for me. And, you know, if you have an example that jumps to mind about each one, that would be really illuminating for the listener as well. So in using the language of fuzzy, messy, and icky, I was really interested in using terms that were not already established scholarly terms and that were intentionally the kind of way that we talk to each other. And so intentionally vernacular language, partly this is something that's happening in certain parts of like affect theory, but also I wanted to kind of find a new way to talk about, um, to talk about these problems. And I was also sort of inspired by the way that often if you say you file a sexual harassment complaint or something like that, sometimes the resolution is you're not allowed to talk about what happened. But we also know that people find ways to talk about things they're not supposed to talk about. So I wanted to kind of think about what else we could do with language. That's really abstract. So let's talk about the terms. So it's fuzzy. I'm interested in thinking about things that are unclear or ambiguous about fuzzy boundaries, about fuzzy memories. One point that often comes up in accounts from survivors of sexual violence is I didn't really know what was happening or I didn't really realize it was, it wasn't until I talked to my friend that I realized what happened was rape or something like that. So this kind of fuzziness, this delay that's built in. Um, in the Bible, I think the clearest example of this is there isn't a Hebrew word that unambiguously means rape. And so often it's fuzzy, just even on the level of plot, what happens. With messy, I'm interested in thinking about consequences and the way that you can think about the English sentence, it got messy or things got messy and how that both, we immediately understand kind of how that describes the way a situation unfolds, but also it got messy, things got messy, like who caused it to be messy is sort of abstracted. And mm -hmm. so this kind of idea of messiness, you can also think about the hot mess, right? That's like yeah. a woman who's like a little out of control. Like maybe she's a little bit to blame. You could think about how this term gets tossed around. Hey, that's me too, um, you know? I know, exactly. So it's, it's relatable, but also it's got this kind of gendered edge to it. So messy kind of speaks to the sort of outcomes of things. I talk about the story of the rape of Tamar which is clearly a rape story, but has messy consequences for the house of David as kind of an example of messy. And then icky. So icky talks about things that are gross or queasy. We can think about things like, oh, he was creepy or it was a weird night or that was just a sketchy situation. There are all these ways we talk about sexual violence, both with and without naming it, or maybe kind of like naming something that doesn't rise to the level of, um, I think sometimes the language of consent and non-consent can be very stultifying. And so I think icky gets at something different. I think also icky can be a way of thinking about how things make us feel. And so icky also evokes sticky. I've brought up this idea of sticky affect, which comes from Sarah Ahmed, but the way that sometimes you read a story and then you just feel icky afterwards because it's an icky story and there's this kind of contagion to it. Um, and so in the Bible, I think a great, there are a lot of things that are icky, but the story of Lot and his daughters, which is a story where Lot's daughters believe they're the only people left alive and they get their father drunk and they have sex with him or rape him and scholars debate who is the victim here, right? Is Lot the victim? Are the daughters the victim? Because earlier he offered them up to be raped, which was just like miraculously avoided. Whatever you decide, I think the real thing is like, this is a very icky story. And this mm -hmm. is the kind of story where like, if you try to teach the story in a classroom, like every, you can feel the ickiness in the classroom. Yeah. And I think that happens in a lot of accounts of sexual violence. So that's kind of what I'm doing with these three terms. Um, they're not, they're not strict categories, but more kind of ways of speaking at what stories do and how stories make us feel. 
So that's a really good summary of the Lot's daughter's story, which kind of speaks to chapter one to the edges of consent. And so you've already sort of summarized Lot. So maybe we can extend with that particular example and you can talk about unpacking it with the after terror style of reading. Can you go a little bit more into that on the after terror style? Yeah, Lot's daughter's is a great place to think about after terror because the whole story on the level of narrative takes place after terror. So this is in chapter 19 of Genesis, which is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. So the first part of the story is when this is the part that's maybe more familiar to readers. So God sends messengers to Sodom and Gomorrah. The people of Sodom or the men of Sodom want to rape the messengers. They are at Lot's house. Lot's like, no, you should just rape my virgin daughters. Instead, miraculously, this is avoided. And then the messengers help Lot and his family escape because God's going to destroy the city with with fire and brimstone. And Lot's wife famously looks back and is turned to a pillar of salt. And so this story is taking place after disaster, after the scene of terror on a really literal level. And so you can think about one thing kind of just playing with the after terror for a little bit is how how these daughters and Lot and the daughters don't have names, which of course, you know, tells us about the status mm. of women, the way their narrative role, but so they're literally living after terror. You can think about how they're traumatized. You can think about how maybe they're finding a way forward. They think they're the only survivors left on earth, which is also interesting because they've previously been in this little city after Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. So they know there are other people, but they have this sense of the only people left alive. You can think about how they've been changed by their experience and they've been changed kind of by their trauma. I think this story also, right, it's clearly fuzzy. It's clearly messy. It's clearly icky. We're not, some scholars argue that the daughters are acting like in their own best attempt to continue kind of human survival on earth. Some scholars argue that they're rapists. Some scholars argue that they're victims, that the whole thing is a kind of patriarchal fantasy. Like, of course, the father who wanted to rape his daughters would imagine his daughters wanted to rape him. And it's all a kind of cover story. Mm-hmm. So I think all of those are, are interesting and important ways to approach the text. So like in a classroom, I would talk about all of those kind of possibilities. But I think also reading after terror, we have to hold open First of all, that there is an after, even if it's not the after that we want. Mm. Second of all, that we might not feel happy about the way the story ends. Like in some ways it would be more cathartic if, if it was like Greek tragedy, you know, and they died in a dramatic way, like Antigone in her cave or something, but that's not what happens in the biblical text. And so holding open the fact that there is a kind of after, even if it's not what we want, I think is important. And then also thinking about how this story sort of touches on or is sticky or contaminates other kind of stories about biblical fathers and daughters. The daughter's children become the Moabites and the Ammonites who are neighbors of the Israelites and sort of um, have kind of complicated relationships. Like Ruth is a Moabite, for example, but generally Moabites are viewed as sort of um, promiscuous neighbors that are very desirable, but should be avoided. So Mm -hmm. you think about kind of how this story opens onto that. Just sort of like having all those, keeping all those possibilities in play rather than just being like, this is truly a tragic story and now we're done. Let's move on. Mm, interesting. Okay. Well, some, so you mentioned like the, the messiness of that. So let's take an example where people feel like it's maybe a little more clear. I feel like the story that you mentioned from uh, the Levites concubine in Judges 19, which is a really famous example of sexual violence. And you even say that like most meetings miss, most readings miss troubling ambiguities in Judges 19. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that story a little bit as well, because uh, you even leave that one open a little bit more, which I found fascinating. Yeah. So Judges 19 is a companion story to the story in Genesis 19. And there are a lot of parallels. So there was a whole a whole kind of biblical scholarship where you'd be like, isn't it great that these stories are similar and you would neglect that they were both stories about rape and violence and things like that. In that story, in the Levite's concubine, again, the woman is unnamed. She's a Pelegesh, which is like concubine or secondary wife. It's sort of unclear how to translate it. So this Levite, so the woman flees from her husband and she goes to her home and she stays with her father and her husband, the Levite comes to follow her. And then they stay for a while. They're delayed by her father. Eventually they leave to go back home, but they leave too late in the day. And so they're forced to stay overnight in the town of Gibeah, which is in the land of Benjamin. 
this old man invites them to stay with him. And then the men of the town, and here you have a clear echo of the Sodom and Gomorrah story. The men of the town come and knock on the doors and they're like, we want to know your guest, which means to rape your guest. And so instead the old man is like, why don't you take my virgin daughter and his concubine instead? And they say no, but then it says he pushed the concubine out. So one of the ambiguities is it's not clear whether it's the old man who's the host or the Levite who's the husband who pushes her out. Mm. He's pushed out of the door. She is raped all night long. And then she is left on the threshold. And then in the morning, the Levite comes out. He says, get up. It's time to go. She doesn't say anything. He puts her on his donkey and they go back home. When they get home, he cuts up her body with a knife and send into 12 parts and sends the 12 parts to the 12 tribes to say, look at this terrible thing that happened to me. So the other really disturbing ambiguity is the text never specifies when she died. It doesn't seem important to the text maybe to mention this. The Greek translation of the Hebrew actually clarifies that she's dead before they leave in the morning, but the Hebrew doesn't actually address this question at all. And I think this is a really important if incredibly disturbing detail in the text. And I was surprised that some, a number of feminist scholars treat the concubine as, as good as dead after she's been raped, whether or not she has been murdered or not. So I think it's important who murders her, right? Is it the men or is it her husband? And when does this death happen? And I think that those, I think those are details that are important details. And if the text might not give us the answer, but I think it's important that we don't gloss over that. Oh my gosh, it's so interesting. Well, and you know, there's a, you allow for a lot of unhappy reading because a lot of these things don't have um, you know like tidy bows that we can tie on top of a completed package. You know what I mean? So unhappy reading can be dissatisfying to humans who read stories where we tend to need a tidy package. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That's and exactly I'm, what I'm thinking with that. Yeah. So what like how how much you encourage readers to open their minds to allowing for unhappiness and being okay with that unhappiness after they finish reading something? Yeah. So I think that's really important for readers and I think it's really hard for readers because we want resolution, right? And sometimes we want the satisfaction of a really good sad ending. And sometimes we want, I mean, sometimes we want a happy ending, but I think also the kind of ambiguity that a lot of biblical texts leave us with this terrible story with the concubine and then leads to warfare. And then they're the tribe of Benjamin. No one wants to marry them because of what they did to the Levite. And so then there's this scene of mass um, kidnapping and genocide that follows because they need to get wise. So this sort of first unhappiness unfolds into other unhappinesses. But for unhappy reading, I think it's important First of all, it acknowledges that unhappy or terrible things happen. Second of all, you might a story might make you feel unhappy. You might also be unhappy about how you feel about a story or feel about a reading. And so sometimes it's uncomfortable that you are so used to a story that it actually doesn't bother you anymore, right? And then you might feel bad about not feeling bad about the story. And I think also like unhappiness is a lack of closure. Like you said, that's really important. You can think about how we can talk about a felicitous plot, right? That has a story that comes to an ending. And some of these stories are just unhappy and that they don't do that. But I think holding space for that kind of unhappiness is a way of allowing us to really feel what's happening in the text, feel how it's affecting us and sort of opening ultimately more interpretive possibilities. Mm. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on the connection between sexual violence in the Bible and sexual violence in our contemporary society today. Does the sexual violence of the Bible lead to any preconceived notions or allowances around sexual violence now? Absolutely. I think that the presence of sexual violence in the Bible is a big part in normalizing sexual violence. I think it contributes to purity culture which also is clearly linked to rape culture, as scholars like Sarah Mosliner have talked about, as feminist pop, popular feminist thinkers like Jessica Valenti have talked about. I think that the way that the Bible is used in many, not all, but in a number of religious communities can be used to sort of either justify sexual violence, to kind of justify a sort of she had it coming. I often think about, there's a passage in Hosea where so in Hosea, there's this graphic description of violence that God is going to um, enact against his wife who represents the nation of Israel. And then 
So there's this extreme description of violence. And then it's followed by this scene that's like, but then I'll take you back because I love you so much. And we'll sort of have a second sort of honeymoon. And then there's more sexual violence after that. I had a student tell me, I was teaching this text and the student told me, oh, we read this at my cousin's wedding, but I didn't know what came before. And I think mm -hmm. that's so telling, right? I mean, you could cut out this like nice little piece, but the larger kind of framework is this justification of sexual violence. So partly I think that's why it's important to know about the sexual violence in the Bible, because sometimes it's upholding contemporary rape culture, even without people realizing that it's part of what's contributing to that. Mm. Something that's really fascinating about your work is the way that you tie in the work of Margaret Atwood, who I am a big fan of. I'm a big fan of Atwood's uh, Mad Adam trilogy, especially Oryx and Crake. Love that book so much. So good. Yeah. Uh, but your conclusion chapter uses Margaret Atwood's Handmaid's Tale in the sequel Testaments to tease an after, even in horrible situations. So Atwood seems to be an important figure to you as well. And, you know, you even edited a volume on Atwood's work called Who Knows What We'd Make of It If We Ever Got Our Hands on It, The Bible and Margaret Atwood. So I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk to me about the influence of Atwood within the scope of your work, because I just found that to be a really interesting inclusion, uh, based, especially considering the the Hulu series of The Handmaid's Tale uh, that and the recent Testaments release as well. Yeah, I love Atwood and Orson Craig is so great. Um, it's the best. That, it's so good. The quote from the title, who knows what we make of it if we ever got our hands on it. That's something that Offred says in The Handmaid's Tale. She's talking about the Bible, right? And so she talks about how, we, who knows what we make of it. And she calls the Bible an incendiary device, which I think is just a perfect image for thinking about the Bible. Um, I've always been interested in reading the Bible together with literature and Atwood just does so many fun, interesting, unusual sort of things with the Bible. The Handmaid's Tale is interesting to this project for two reasons, well, for lots of reasons, but for two reasons in particular, one is I was teaching feminist biblical interpretation and I taught the novel as kind of a, just so we would have a break from reading biblical texts. And I was so surprised when I went back and read it, there's a part where Offred is describing what happens to her with the commander. And she specifically says it's not rape. And I was mm. really, surprised by that because at this point, especially because of Hulu, but also just in popular culture, I feel like Handmaid's Tale and rape are basically treated as synonymous. And so the fact that Offred rejects that, I just found fascinating. Maybe think about, right, is she, does she have false consciousness? What does it mean if we tell her she's being raped? Like, is that really a kind of feminist gesture? Um, I also think that Atwood just, she's so good at sort of opening possibilities and exploring. I think the Oryx and Crake does this in the really interesting way with thinking about other kind of contemporary issues of climate, things like that. I just love Atwood. And so, yeah, she pops up in my work. Um, I have an essay in the other, the book we edited on Atwood, my colleague, Peter Sabo, was my co-editor on that. We both just love Atwood and we decided to put this project together and we found a lot of other Atwood fans, which was lovely. But my essay there is about, I don't know if you know about this. She invented a pen that writes at great distances. It's called the long pen. Oh, interesting. So you can do ink signatures at a distance. And so I talk about that and there's places in the Bible where a disembodied hand will appear and write. And so sort of that kind of biblical logic. Amazing. Well, I'm wondering if you can say, if you have any suggestions um, you have to intrigued people, if they're looking to test out a new type of reading for themselves in one of these texts or, you know, any advice you may have to um, any high school teachers out there like myself who are listening who might be about to embark upon like a literary study of the Bible with their students. Like what would, what would you encourage these folks to do? So my first piece of advice is really concrete. I would say it is always a good idea to pick a short text to work with. And so one reason, I mean, I'm obviously biased towards the Bible, but sometimes they teach like a Western great classics of Western literature kind of class. And I love the Bible compared to something like the Iliad because the short stories are so short. Mm -hmm. And so this lets you really spend time with the text and get into the text and turn it around and sort of revisit it and ask questions. In the book, I talk about four kind of strategies for interpretation, which I talked about before, not assuming innocence, try not to be paranoid, pay attention to sticky affects and how the text makes you feel. Think about reading the text together with literature. I think this can also be film, popular culture in general often kind of helps us sort of shake the way we think about text. And the other thing, the other kind of set of suggestions I would have is more practical. 
There are some scholars of writing, Rosenwasser and Stephen, they talk about the five analytical moves. These are really common in college writing classrooms. I don't know about high school classrooms, but it's just like five things you should do when reading and thinking about an argument. So you suspend judgment. You think about the significant parts. You make the implicit explicit. You look for patterns and you keep asking questions and reformulating your answers. And so I started using this in class just to sort of help my students think about being better writers. But I've actually found out a really useful way to approach biblical text too, just to sort of like bracket your judgment, think about what's significant, make things explicit, look for patterns, keep asking that kind of asking again and again. I think is really helpful. I like to just print out or isolate just one story. So like the rape of Dina is Genesis 34 or something and just get a bunch of different colored pens and mark the text up and just sort of force yourself to stay with it for longer than feels comfortable. And that's often, I think, when when the breakthroughs really come. Mm, I, I love that. I have a, a similar style of assignment. I call it uh, an advanced difficulty paper which is sort of like a journal entry, but I have it as a structured thing where I write down the, where I have students write down their imp their immediate impressions of a text. Immediately after reading, what are your impressions? How does this connect to your life? And then a list of questions that they find themselves asking, and then attempt to resolve one of your questions that you wrote down in the, in section two, in section three. So they try to like answer one of their own questions and like get mysterious with it. I absolutely love assignments like that because you never know what, is going to come out. Does that make sense? It's way yeah, less great. It's way less packaged. That. Yeah. I love stuff like that. Well, Dr. Rhiannon Graybill, I am so delighted by your work. I'm so glad that we were able to get connected and that I was able to learn about what it is that you do because your field of study is so interesting. And I'm, like I said earlier, I'm just so glad there's people out there like yourself who are doing this and this incredibly important work of, um, pushing the way we think about these stories because it, it it's just a massive contribution to the field of literary studies in general. And I'm wondering if you can say where people can find you if they want to know more about what you do and if they can follow you somewhere. Oh, yeah, that's great. So let's see. So I have a, I mean, there's a page for my book on the Oxford website. It's going to be on Amazon soon, but it's delayed because of these COVID-related um, printing delays, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I have a website at the Rose, at Rose College. My name is spelled R-H-I-A-N-N-O-N, Graybill, G-R-A-Y-B-I-L-L. Um, my Twitter handle is rgraybill1. Um, Fabulous. Number one. And that, I post about my book there. Um, so, yeah. Fabulous. Well, Dr. Graybill, this has been a real pleasure uh, having this conversation with you today. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on Classical Ideas. It means a lot. Thank you so much for having me.